as I said earlier in the service, today is the first Sunday in Lent. And in the season of Lent, we're looking at all the things within us that God cares about. It struck me as uh, Pastor Harrison and myself were putting together this series, and as I chose to start the first sermon on pride, that in every season, and especially perhaps even this season, our greatest temptation is to think about and focus on ourselves. And so maybe I think I shouldn't be so prideful. I should think of myself more humbly. So what are my needs? What are my wants? And how can I show others that I'm in control of my pride? Maybe I need to fast in some way. Maybe I could take a cold shower or a cold plunge every morning. Maybe I could deny myself of some food or treat that I love in this season. To be sure, all of those things might have some physical benefit or might help our relationship with others. But if we're still focused on ourselves, we're never going to experience a deeper, more meaningful spiritual life. The invitation to think about all the things that within us that God cares about is not just to focus on ourselves, but to recognize that the things that happen within us can and ought to turn our hearts to God. In the vein of turning our hearts to God, maybe uh, you have wondered why Lent begins with ashes. Every spring, Lent begins with a day that's called Ash Wednesday. Perhaps this past week you noticed uh, Christians or friends from other traditions who went around and had a smudge of ashes on their forehead in the shape of a cross. But why begin Lent with ashes? Ashes, after all, are what's left over after a fire. Ashes fit with the end of something, not the beginning. And indeed, the ashes that are used in Ash Wednesday are usually or traditionally made from the palm branches that were burned at the end of last year's Easter season, after Palm Sunday. Those ashes are usually kept until the beginning of the next year's season, Because Jesus' suffering points Christians to a life that comes after suffering, to new life that comes after death, to health and growth that comes not because of ashes, or not despite ashes, excuse me, but actually because of them. Maybe you can picture a forest fire. We've seen too many of them in the past summers. After a devastating forest fire, All kinds of new growth happens in a forest. New trees and shoots spring up where old growth trees had grown before because the old growth trees have taken so much energy and now they've been removed. In the same way, the ashes of Lent and the suffering of the season, even though painful, makes room in our hearts for God to bring new And beautiful things. If we continue with the analogy of Lent and the forest fire that leaves us with ashes, pride is one of those old growth trees in the hearts of humans. Pride has been with God's people from the beginning. Only a few hundred years after Jesus lived, St. Augustine talked about pride as the original sin. He looked at the prophet Isaiah 
who, who references Lucifer, the morning star, who says, I will arise to the heavens. I will raise up my throne above the stars of God. I will make myself like the Most High. But he fell. And later, as, he, as the serpent tempted Adam and Eve to take the fruit, the temptation was, you will be like God. It's pride that motivates so much of our lives and our sin and our selfishness. Pride of wanting to be in control, in charge. Humanity's pride, apart from God, which we have had since Adam and Eve, is one of the key struggles that each of us face within us. But we don't only want to look at our own hearts. We also, this morning and throughout this season, want to look at God's patient and beautiful answers to our desperate situation. And so this morning, I want to tell two stories from Scripture. The second story is our text, and we'll get to that one, and we'll actually read that one. But the first story, I want to just summarize for you. It's a story found in the Old Testament earlier in the Bible story, a story about Naaman, a commander of the army of Aram, which was an enemy of God's people, just like the Roman Empire. And Before we read the story of the centurion, the Roman centurion, who comes to Jesus and asks for his servant to be healed, just reflect for a few minutes on a similar story. Naaman uh, was a commander of the armies of Aram, like I said, and he came to the prophet Elisha in the Old Testament, not asking for a servant to be healed, but asking that he himself could be healed. He wanted to be healed of leprosy, which is a uh, necrotic skin disease. Elisha gave Naaman a simple instruction. He said to him, wash, go wash in the Jordan River just over there. Go wash in the Jordan River seven times. But Naaman was too proud. He didn't want to do it. He wanted to be in control of his own healing. He wanted to wash in a nicer, cleaner river, closer to his own house. But when he finally was humbled and agreed to do it, God immediately healed him. Even after that, however, Naaman tried to lavish gifts on Elisha or Elisha's servants, not just to say thank you, but Elisha wanted to use his money to try to ensure that he was still in control, that he didn't owe God anything. He didn't owe the man of God anything. And so Elisha refused the gift because Naaman did owe God. The context of this story might seem very foreign to us, but consider that still today, a proud man will first use his position to refuse instruction. If that doesn't work, he'll try to use his power to coerce other people. If that still doesn't work, he'll use his money to try to change others or overcompensate, ensuring that he doesn't owe anyone anything, that he is still in control, that he still gets what he wants. Our human hearts have not changed so much, even since the Old Testament. Consider a certain type of church or a certain type of preaching today, commonly known as the prosperity gospel. People today value money, but also our physical health, because money and health help us feel like we are in control of our lives and in control of our situations. 
The prosperity gospel says that the good news is that you can be rich and you can be healthy, which is to say you can be in control of your own life as long as you follow certain principles and first give a smaller amount of money to God now. It's the sin of Adam and Eve to think that with a certain gift or certain ability or certain amount of money, we too can be like God, in control of our own lives, in control of our future. It's pride that guides a minister to preach that kind of message, and pride always leads us to sin, to suffering, and to death. In such a kind of message, starts at the beginning, very popular. You can be in charge is always a popular message. But later, people go away sad. They go away poor. They go away disappointed. They go away feeling judged by others because they asked, they hoped, they longed. And still, life's difficulties, struggles, sin, and and, uh, even death came to them. So what are we to do? What is the good news? After that rather lengthy introduction, I want to turn to our text in just a moment and to the message of the gospel, to the good news that is good news today because it still is the same that it was long ago. The author of the gospel of Matthew tells us how Jesus came and lived uh, for 34 years, growing up, living, teaching, loving others, dying and rising to new life. Matthew shows two things that always struck people who listened to Jesus' message. The first one was that Jesus taught with authority, not like other teachers of the law. And the second one was that Jesus' authoritative teachings were always accompanied by signs and wonders. Jesus preached about the kingdom of God, and his teaching was always accompanied with the authority and the power of God the King. And so just before we, I read these verses for you, I want to remind you where we are and where we find ourselves in this story of Jesus. Matthew tells us at the start of the story, which we're going to read in just a moment, that Jesus was in Capernaum. Capernaum was Jesus' home base. If you ever go to Israel, uh, and on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, you can still see the foundations of the house outside which this story takes place. Archaeologists have found the actual house of Peter and Andrew, of Jesus' disciples. That was the house where Jesus based his ministry. In that house, Jesus' first miracle was to forgive the sins of the lame man, whose friends had lowered him into the roof because the house was so full they couldn't get in. Jesus made that lame man walk. Just outside that house, Mark tells us that demon-possessed people came and fell down, proclaiming Jesus' lordship and power. That sick people crowded in so much just to touch him and connect with his power. That crowds were so thick that Jesus had to get into one of Simon and Andrew's or Peter and Andrew's boats. And just create a little distance so that people could hear him. Jesus was becoming very, very popular. And then we read this story. I think the words will be on the screen. There we go. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, asking for help. Lord, 
he said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority or a man of authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. I tell that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found such anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom, but the subjects of this kingdom will be thrown outside into the into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And and his servant was healed at that moment. So far, the reading of God's word. At that time, the centurion found Jesus in and around his home in Capernaum. The centurion definitely knew that Jesus was a powerful man. Nothing else can account for the humility that he shows to Jesus and the deference he shows him. Lord, I do not deserve to come under your roof. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. This powerful man recognizes the authority and power of Jesus, the authority and power of the kingdom of God. And he takes the opposite approach to Naaman. Rather than trying to prove his own power or claim that he's still in charge or that things should happen in his house or in his way, the centurion demonstrates his trust and his humility before Jesus and before God. It's a beautiful, I hope, a beautiful and helpful thing to contrast those two men and their approach to God or to the man of God. We might imagine that others will be impressed by our power, by our control, by our abilities. But Jesus is surprised by the centurion's humility. And Jesus says a remarkable thing in his response. Not only does he say, I haven't found anyone in Israel with faith like this, meaning anyone among God's people, Jesus also uses his power to heal the man's servant with a word. Jesus couldn't be impressed with any human power. After all, what is human power? What is human authority or human wisdom compared to the power and authority of God? I say this because I want to remind you and remind us that even though we are often proud, even though we often insist we're in control of our own lives, we each and all have many masters. We have employers and teachers who tell us how to spend our time. We have a government which demands a portion of our income in tax. Even those we are in charge of, family members or loved ones, We have a duty of love toward them. We don't simply order them around. Between the commander Naaman and the Roman centurion, 
we see two very different human approaches to power, to pride, and to being in control. Naaman has to be humbled by God, but the centurion is already humbled. Yet to both, God shows God's amazing power, God's actual control. In the text that we read, we see that God is in control over the world. That God is in control from the distant planets and orbits and galaxies to the microbes in our bodies and the diseases that we face. God is actually in control over all of it. When we see God at work in these stories, we have the opportunity to reflect on the uselessness of pride. If we have great human power, then with the centurion or maybe with Spider-Man, we have great responsibility. But it's nothing to boast about. Likewise, if we have little power or little ability within ourselves, we have nothing to be ashamed of. We are limited in our power. There are no reasons when we compare ourselves to God for us to be proud. But that is not the end of the story for Christians. Because the gospel is that God gives his people his power. When we see and read these stories in the Old Testament and the New, we can see that the greatest human power, the cleverest human logic, the most luxurious human wealth, it all crashes like a wave against the cliff of God's power. Whatever we have doesn't even approach the height of God, of God's power, God's wisdom, God's wealth. Ours is far less. And God can give the simplest person among us, the person who has the least, when given God's power has far more than the greatest in who, who works in his or her human strength. Consider again this Roman centurion. Because of his humility and because of God's power and love, he received not only the praise from Jesus and the assurance that the kingdom of God was about more than just one nation, he also received the powerful action and miraculous healing that was far beyond his power, but easily within God's power. This amazing healing from Jesus and the powerful promise about a kingdom that is here and a kingdom that is to come and a kingdom that's not just for one people in one place, but for all people who call Jesus Lord. All of that required nothing from the centurion. He came with a humble request and an open heart. And he saw and met the awesome power of God and the power and love of God's kingdom embodied in Jesus. This story, like so many in the Bible, shows us God's great power and reminds us of a truth that is central for the life of Christians with God. Here it is. God does not need your help. God doesn't need your help. Brothers and sisters, this is oh so different from saying that God doesn't want you. 
Oh, how He loves you, we sing. How He wants you. But He doesn't need your help. He doesn't need your money, your power, your strength, or your wisdom. Pride says to you and to me, it says that you can serve God and remain in control of your life, or at least some part of your life, because that's the part that God needs from you. That He's depending on you, that He's grateful to you for, but God does not need you. He does not need me. And what a comfort that is when we reflect upon it for us to rest in. Jesus, throughout his ministry, tells many parables, and he tells this one about the kingdom of God in Mark chapter 5. Jesus says, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he doesn't know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel of the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, the man puts a sickle to it because the harvest has come. Jesus gives many pictures of the kingdom of God to show its great value, its great worth, its great power. To show the passion of the king and the father and the glory and goodness and love. But this Lent, let's consider how God's kingdom comes. The kingdom comes... Jesus says in this parable, all by itself. Whether you sleep or get up, the kingdom grows and sprouts, even if you don't know it. The coming kingdom is God's gift to God's people. God does not need you. God is not waiting for you to act or for you to convince other people or for you to use your money in a certain way. And thanks be to God that he does not need me, that he does not need you. Thanks be to God that he has not called us to be the gatekeepers to his kingdom. It doesn't depend on us to rise and it doesn't crumble when we fall. The power and mercy of God are great enough to lift up the high and the lowly to the heights of God's love and care. He takes us from the gutter and sets us high, safe, and secure on a rock. We all go through periods of struggle, discouragement. We go through periods of loss, of physical and emotional pain. Many of us also psychological distress and many other kinds of challenges in our lives. But the goodness that we have does not, these, these things are common to humanity because of our broken world and the sin within our hearts. But make no mistake that the goodness, the blessings, and the strengths that you have and that we have are, we have because of the awesome power of our Almighty God. You have what you have because Jesus went through the struggle, the suffering, the pain, and the death to win a safe and secure present and future for you and for all whom God loves. And so when you go through suffering, when you struggle, when you experience pain, and even when you see death, 
The kingdom of God is there with you. The power of God is there with you. And it's not from you. It's not dependent on you. Paul reminds God's people, it's by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. As you sit in your seat this morning, as you sit at home on Zoom this morning, God is there with you. And God has given to you what he has given, the good that he has given, because of Jesus and because of Jesus' power, made perfect in your weakness and in mine. Praise God. But pity the person who, has, who str- struggles, who suffers, and even who dies, and has no one to help him get up. We are well acquainted with suffering, with struggle, with discouragement. We're well acquainted with ashes. Ashes that don't lead to resurrection life. There's a kind of death that only leads to death. That's the kind of pride and selfishness. When we work in our own strength, when we insist that we really are in charge, the limits of our abilities are our our only reward. But there is a kind of death that leads to life. And that death and that life is a gift of God. Suffering is common, but redemptive suffering is rare and precious. We can find redemptive power only in Jesus. Not in our own ability, not in our own power, but thanks be to God that it is ours in Christ. We do not need to earn it. It is freely given at Christ's word. As it was given to Naaman, as it was given to the centurion, as it was given by Christ on the cross, so it is measured out to you until you are full to overflowing. We're going to close our time together in prayer. But between now and then, I just want to invite you to be silent and maybe reflect. I'll give you about 30 seconds just to reflect on what God, through his Holy Spirit, may be speaking to you this morning. So please pray with me. God, speak to our hearts in these next moments. Speak the words that we need to hear. Heavenly Father, the Gospels tell us that 
when, you, when your son Jesus died on the cross, there was silence for about half an hour. We know in the silence that you are moving, that you are speaking. The psalmist reminds us that darkness is not dark to you. That in what is unseen and in what is unheard, still you are there. Still you are moving. Lord, as we crash up against the limits of ourselves, the limits of our power, the limits of our ability, the limits of our desire, even to do good and even to help others, meet us at our limits. Meet us in the silence and the suffering and the discouragement and the tiredness and in the darkness. And walk with us through that death into the life that Christ has won for us. Not because we are worthy of it, but because of your goodness, your love, and your power made perfect in our weakness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.